0: Well, we are in for a very interesting, uh, potentially awkward subject, and what better way to handle an awkward subject than to put everyone together in a more intimate (laughs) setting so that we can share it together and amplify the effect fully. As you may know, we're going through the book of Genesis, and today we're going to be in Genesis 19, but we're going to start just back a little bit in Genesis 18, if you want to turn there. We've been following the journey of the man known as the father of faith, Abraham, but today we're going to shift our focus to Abraham's nephew, Lot, and his family. And you may recall that Lot joined with Abraham and Abraham's father on their journey of spiritual discovery, and then Lot continued with Abraham even after Abraham's father passed away. And they both grew in wealth to the point where they couldn't even share the same piece of land because they had so much livestock. And so Abraham said, let's go our separate ways, Lot. And he graciously said, you can have first pick of whatever land you want. And so Lot didn't look out and ask the question, where would be the best place to raise a family? He didn't say, I wonder what the Lord would have me do. Instead, we're told that he lifted up his eyes. He saw how green and fertile the land was in the direction of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And so that's the land he chose. Unfortunately, those twin cities were also given over to complete wickedness and sin. They were full of pagan worship, abuse of the worst kinds, and more, as we will find out today. And last week, Jesus came to visit Abraham and shared with him that he was going to judge Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham knew that the cities would inevitably be found guilty and deserving of destruction. So incredibly, last week we heard Abraham negotiate with God and obtain a promise from the Lord that he would not destroy the cities if there could be found 10 righteous people, 10 believers within the city walls. Abraham clearly thought that would be enough to save Lot and his family. We'll find out that God will save them, but he will not spare the city because there won't be even 10 believers found there. So this week is going to be one of the most politically incorrect topics we could talk about, which is why I'm going to ask you the favor to just stay for the entire message, to hear the complete picture of what we're going to talk about today. If you get offended and leave before the whole picture's been given, you're going to have just that. You're going to have an incomplete picture. But I have a feeling that in this intimate setting, the embarrassment of getting up and leaving is going to be even greater than the <laughs> subject that we're talking about. So really stack the deck in my favor, okay? So let's take a deep breath, and, and we'll get into this in just a second here. So when Jesus was on the earth, one of the things he talked about was the end times. And in Luke 17, Jesus is talking specifically to his disciples, to his followers. And he's telling them what signs they should watch for in the future that would be indicators that he would be returning to the earth very soon. These are going to be signs. These are going to be tells that will tell you and I that the end is very, very near. And what Jesus said in Luke 17 is this. There's no room for it on your outlines. I'll just read it to you. He said, and as it was in the days of Noah so it will also be in the days of the Son of Man. They ate, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, as it was also in the days of Lot, they ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. But on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even so will it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. So Jesus gives us two places, two very specific references, the days of Lot and the days of Noah. And he says, it's going to be just like these two times that are recorded in the scriptures. Jesus doesn't say it's gonna be just like the days of Ezekiel and the days of Solomon. He doesn't say it's gonna be like the days of Joshua and the days of David. He's very specific that it's going to be like the days of Noah and the days of Lot. And the logical question becomes, well, in what way? Jesus tells us what he wants us to notice about these two references. He wants us to notice that in both stories, life was going on as normal all the way up to the point when their world ended. And Jesus wants us to take note of the fact that people who didn't listen to Noah or didn't listen to Lot didn't see what was coming. They were were taken by surprise. They weren't expecting it in any way. And so in the same way, in the end times, in the last days, it's gonna be best described as business as usual in a very unusual time, all the way up until the day of the rapture when Jesus comes for his church and removes her from the earth. There's not going to be fire falling from the sky just before the rapture happens. People are gonna be marrying each other. They're gonna be shopping. Life's gonna be normal but there's going to be some very not normal things happening at the same time. A good analogy is if you've heard it before, the idea of the frog being boiled in water. If you don't know this, you can boil a frog to death in water because they won't notice the slowly increasing temperatures. They won't see it coming and they'll actually end up dying if you just raise the temperature slowly enough. The idea is that in the last days, there's going to be some things that will be shocking and dramatic. But many people won't see them that way because they won't notice the change that's happened. That's the idea here. So as we mentioned earlier, in Genesis 18, Jesus tells Abraham that he's come down to check out what's going on in Sodom and Gomorrah. Now just please know this, the Lord doesn't need to investigate Sodom and Gomorrah. He knows exactly what's going on. But he allows events to unfold this way so that they could be recorded in scripture so that we could understand what's really going on. So take a look in your Bibles at verse 20 of Genesis 18. And we read this, we read, And the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because, and then please underline, their sin is very grave. Their sin is very grave. I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry against it that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So whatever is going on in Sodom, is clearly categorized as sin by by Jesus himself. Their sin includes all kinds of behavior, but we have to take note of the fact that in the very next chapter, the chapter we're going to look at today, Genesis 19, the Bible chooses to highlight one very specific sin. And there's no way to say that that's not important and that doesn't matter. So make a note of this. The Lord considers what's going on in Sodom to be very grave sin, very grave sin. That's the Lord himself speaking. He's very clear about that. Lot is an interesting study in scripture because Jesus says it's going to be like it was in the days of Lot. And we don't have to go through a whole book. We don't have to go through twelve chapters of Lot's life and wonder, well, which part? Because there's really only one chapter in the Bible that's specifically focused on Lot, and it's this one. It's Genesis chapter 19. The whole main narrative for the last several chapters in Genesis, if you've been with us, has been the life and faith journey of Abraham. Abraham, Abraham, Abraham. And then all of a sudden, Genesis 19 takes this left turn and focuses in on Lot before picking back up with the story of Abraham. Because the Bible wants us to know this is incredibly important, so it's giving a whole chapter to it. And it makes a lot more sense when you understand that the main reason this is in Genesis is so that Jesus could refer to it thousands of years later when he was on the earth, when he was describing what it would be like in that season just before the rapture would take place. He points us to the days of Lot, and being that Lot only gets one chapter in the Bible, wouldn't you agree that it's worth looking into? It's worth seeing what it says right there, absolutely. And we're going to find that the days of Lot are defined by something very specific taking place. So let's take a look at chapter 19, verse 1. We're going to read it. And I'll share some observations as we make our way through it. Please remember, as always, don't believe anything that I say. The ideal would be that you didn't believe anything that I say, and you'd go to your Bible for yourself and check it out to find out whether or not it's true. That's the goal for every Bible study we do. I'm going to share what I believe our view is, what we believe the Bible is saying. But in the ideal world, all of us are checking this out for ourselves and reflecting on it as well. So I'm going to teach, going to share some observations and you come to your own conclusions as to whether or not this seems credible. Verse one, now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and he bowed himself with his face toward the ground. So you'll notice now that the the three men from chapter 18 are now two angels. Jesus doesn't actually enter The city. And the likely reason for that is that he would have had to just destroy it immediately. Because God is absolutely righteous, and this is a time period before he's died on the cross and made provision for the forgiveness of sin. But he wants us to have this story recorded so he doesn't just enter the city and deal with everything right away. The fact that Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom doesn't mean a gate like we would have at our house or one like yours. It refers to an area around one of the main entrances of the city where city leaders would sit. And so they would see everyone coming in and out of the city. They would deal with civic affairs, render judicial verdicts and things like that in this place called the gate. So the fact that Lot is sitting in the gate, that phrase means that he's a man of prominence. He's become an actual leader in the city. And as we know from earlier in the book of Genesis, he's blessed with wealth. So he's got stature in the city, he's got reputation and he's got wealth. So write this down. It also tells us that Lot had integrated into the culture of his city. He was fully integrated into the culture of his city. We're gonna find out that while Lot was a believer, he and his family were very immersed in the culture of Sodom. He first saw Sodom and Gomorrah from a distance, thought it looked attractive, and he pitched his tent, we were told, closer and closer to the cities, and then he eventually moved in and immersed in the culture. That's the progression. Write this down too. In this story, Lot is a picture of the believer, the believer. That's going to be hard to believe as we get deeper and deeper into this story. He's a picture of the believer, though. A very messed up believer, but a believer nonetheless. He and most of his family, most of his household, are going to be the only believers in the city. So when Lot bows down to these two men, it's showing that he recognizes their angels, but nobody else does. None of the unbelievers in the city recognize them as messengers sent by the Lord. Verse two, and he, Lot, said, hear now, my lords, please turn into your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise early and go on your way. And they said, no, but we'll spend the night in the open square. No, we're, we're going to just stay out in the public square and check out the scene, see what's going on in this city. That's what we're here to do. But he insisted strongly. Lot says, you don't want to do that. So they turned into him and entered his house. Then he made them a feast, he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread and they ate. We're gonna find out that Lot is insisting that they spend the night under his roof because he knows that there's a very good reason why they don't wanna be out in public at night in this city. So take note as well that Lot makes the meal, which is very unusual for that time and culture and we'll explain later why that's interesting. Now remember, Jesus said that right before he comes for his church, it will be as it was in the days of Lot. Verse four, now before they lay down, the men of the city, and then underline, the men of Sodom, both old and young, all the people from every quarter surrounded the house. So make a note of this too. So apparently this sin is being taught to the children as normal behavior, and it's widespread. It's being taught to the children because we see that they're there in this whole scene with the men of Sodom, and it's widespread. It says they were people from every quarter. This isn't just a specialist group. This is a widespread thing in the culture. Children are right there. They're part of it. Verse five, and they called to Lot and said to him, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them carnally. They're not looking to have a beer and welcome the angels to their fair city. The idea, just to be blunt here, is that they want to rape them. That's what they're saying. So write this down. So clearly, homosexuality is practiced openly and is acceptable in their culture. It's practiced openly and acceptable because they come to Lot's house for this express purpose. They bring kids with them, knowing that this is what they're going to the house to do. And there's people from every quarter in the city. It's practiced openly and it's acceptable in their culture and they don't expect to encounter any resistance. They make the request very plainly as if this is something any reasonable person in the city would do. Even from the household of the believer, they don't expect any resistance. It's just assumed that the believer is going to be on board with this idea like everyone else. And we'll see what happens when the believer is forced into a situation where he has to reveal that he's actually not on board with this. Verse 6. So Lot went out to them through the doorway shut the door behind him. So in terms of our end time study, make note that there's a door showing up, which is always a big deal in scripture because it's what divides the believer's place of safety from the place where the unbelievers are, the place where God's wrath and judgment are going to be. This is what we see in Revelation 4.1. You'll recall John says, I looked up in heaven and saw an open door and a voice saying to me, come up here. This shows up in Isaiah 26, 20 and 21 as well. And it's going to be a picture here as well in Genesis 19. So we shut the door behind them. Lot goes out there and said, and then underline what he says to them. He says, please, my brethren, do not do so wickedly. So you probably noticed that Lot called what they were proposing wicked. But I want you to notice too how, how he addresses them. He speaks kindly. He says, please. And he even calls them brethren. Now, there's two views on this. We'll talk about one next week. Calling the brethren, there are some pastors who would point out what a sorry statement this is on Lot, that he's chosen to associate himself with people who would choose to live so wickedly. But the other view is saying that maybe he's done something that sounds very familiar to Christians in our culture. Maybe what he's done is he said, man, I'm going to love the sinner and I'm going to hate the sin, but you know I'm not going to mention the hating the sin part so much. And, and maybe if I love them really well and just care for them and show them so much love, maybe it won't be an issue, you know, when, when somebody asks me one day if I agree with their lifestyle or not. And that's very likely here. So he's calling them brethren. And I just want you to notice here, is Lot putting himself above them? Is he speaking unkindly? Is he being hateful towards them? Is he mistreating them? Is he trampling on their rights and freedoms? I write this down. Lot is embodying hate the sin, love the sinner. That's what he's doing. Hate the sin, love the sinner. I love you, I don't agree with what you're doing though. He's being loving and kind toward them, but he's refusing to agree with what they're doing and he's refusing to participate in what they're doing. And so let's find out if that's gonna be good enough or not. Lot comes up with a solution to this situation that is quite simply awful. And uh, we'll talk about it right after we read it here. Verse eight. He says, see now, I have two daughters who have not known a man. The idea is they're virgins. Please let me bring them out to you, and you may do to them as you wish. Only do nothing to these men, since this is the reason they have come under the shadow of my roof. So this is a disturbing solution from Lot to state the absolute obvious. It's disturbing, and and we can try to explain this away. We can talk about how in the Middle East at this time, if you took someone under your roof, brought them into your home as a guest, you were responsible for their safety, to protect their lives at any cost. But, but at the end of the day, obviously, this is just inexcusable. It's awful. It's absolutely horrendous. And I've read through all the suggested explanations and all the commentaries. And, and all I can come up with is that Lot's thinking has become so perverted, so corrupted as a result of being immersed in Sodom's culture that this solution actually seems sensible to him that when you're surrounded by a standard of sin that's so high, there's just sin around you all the time, you become desensitized to it and, and things that would once seem horrifying actually seem to make sense. That's all I can think of when I read this passage here. It's an awful, awful situation. I do think though that the Lord uses this and records it here in Genesis 19 just so that we can clearly understand that the men of the city will actually have no interest in woman at this time they're not going to even touch his daughters they're going to have no interest in that offer they're far more interested in the angels so make a note of this the men of Sodom have they have no interest in woman just in case we were confused about what's going on here I think sometimes the Bible is extra plain so that we can't say oh it's not really saying what it seems like it's saying surprisingly I've never seen this part of the story in any children's Bible yet yeah. Yeah, surprisingly I guess they just ran out of space but notice what Lot says He goes on and he says, do nothing to these men since this is the reason they've come under the shadow of of my roof, my roof. So all he's doing is he's asking the men of the city to respect the fact that these men, these angels are under his roof. They're in his house and he knows that his guests don't want to participate in what these men are into. So write this down. Lot asks the men of Sodom to respect his right to a different viewpoint in his own home, in his own home. That's all he's asking for in his own home. All he's saying is please respect my personal space in my own home. Please allow us to hold to our own values inside our own home. Lot's not going out and protesting here. He's not posting hateful speech on social media. He's just asking that he be allowed to hold to his religious values inside his own home under his own roof. So let's find out if his appeal will be heard. Verse 9. And they said, stand back. Then they said, this one, they're talking about Lot to each other. This one came in to stay here. So he moved into our city and he keeps acting as a judge, underline acting as a judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. So they pressed hard against the man Lot and came near to break down the door. So remember, they've come to Lot's house. He hasn't gone out to their houses. They've come to him. And what do they accuse him of? The greatest crime of all in the 21st century, intolerance, intolerance. He hasn't gone to their houses. They've come to him and they accuse him of being judgmental, write that down. The greatest modern sin of them all, being intolerant, being intolerant. That's their accusation. You're acting as a judge against us even though he hasn't gone out. He hasn't gone out and protested them. They've come into his house, his space and accused him of being intolerant. And they're now saying, we're gonna rape you as well. They're saying, you're the one who chose to live here in our culture, in our society. And this is just something you better get on board with if you're gonna be a part of our society in this city. They're trying to force him and his household to participate in their sin. They're right outside the door trying to break it down and get into the household of the believers. So let's see what happens next. Verse 10, but the men, the two angels reached out their hands and then underline pulled Lot into the house with them and shut what? Shut the door. There again is this picture of the believer being pulled inside and the door being closed behind them. And they, the angels, struck the men of the city who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great. So again, it's being redundant so that we understand there were kids there as well. So that they became weary trying to find the door. And so you're really gonna have to think think about this and weigh it for yourself, because What the text is teaching here is so controversial. And I know I keep saying that as we go through this, but it just keeps like escalating in its uh, inflammatory nature. And this is why most churches don't want to teach on this. I'm going to leave it up to you to connect the dots here or not, because potentially this is so difficult. We're told that as a result of their sin, as a result of what they're trying to do here, get into the home of the believer, these men are struck with a physical infirmity a physical illness, disease. It affects both the young and the old. And many Bible scholars believe this is what Paul is referring to in Romans where he writes this. I'll just read it to you. It's from Romans 1. It begins in verse 26. Paul says, For this reason God gave them up to vile passions, for even their woman exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman burned in their lust for one another, men with men, committing what is shameful, and and then this is the controversial part, receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, they didn't want to know anything about God, didn't want anything to do with Him in their minds, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. So God is always working to draw us to him. But multiple times in scripture, it points to there coming, a time in a person's life where they've rejected God so many times that God basically says, okay, you don't want to hear from me? Then I'll make it so that you can't hear from me. And it's a terrifying and sad thought because we know that nobody can turn to Jesus without the Holy Spirit drawing them to Jesus. So make a note of this, but this affliction doesn't make them repent it doesn't make them repent and the controversial part you're going to have to weigh for yourself is if there's a parallel to modern day here uh, that they were struck with an infirmity with a physical disease specifically because they were involved in this specific sin you'll have to weigh and decide if there might be a modern parallel to that it doesn't make them stop even though they're struck with this disease in fact they double down on their sin And they exhaust themselves in their blindness, trying to find the door to Lot's house. So unmistakably, there's a militancy here to their goal of trying to break down the door of the believer. It's just not enough for those who are involved in this sin to say, well, as long as we can do it, that's fine. They want to get into the household of the believer and get the believer on board with it. It's a mission for this group. And Jesus said, it's going to be just the same in the age when I'm going to come from my church. So my question is very simple. Are are there perhaps some very uncanny similarities between the days of Lot and the days that you and I are living in? You know, I'm fascinated by studies and and especially the study of how values become a part of society, how values change in a society. And we've talked about this on and off over the years at New Hope, but, but I read a study a few years ago where I learned some of the tricks of the trade. The tools that are used by people who want to change the values of a society. So say you're part of a group and you decide, you know what, I think that our society needs to have this change. We have this moral value right now, and I wanna change this moral value. How do you actually do that in a society? And many people think, well, you gotta run for political office, that, that's how you generate change in a country, and it's actually not true at all. What this article I read laid out very simply, it said that you can change a society's perception completely, Toward any issue in just one generation, in 12 years, if you can do one thing, if you can get your message into the educational system, you will change the entire culture's view in one generation in just 12 years. Because they'll go through schooling in one end, they'll come out the other as graduates, for all intents and purposes, brainwashed to whatever view you can get pumped into them for 12 years years. That's really where minds are molded is in the educational system. And we all know and understand that the reason our public school system has required reading and required lessons about homosexuality and now transgenderism, we know the reason that's in the school system is because we want it to be completely normalized. And it's worked. That happened in Canada decades ago with homosexuality. Now the new movement is transgenderism. So why is there this rush to get that subject into the school system because that's how you generate change in a culture. That's how you generate acceptance. You get into schools and you get onto college and university campuses. You teach it to them when they're young and you teach them simultaneously that any other view is intolerant and bigoted. So you feed them information on one end to change their thinking and then you create fear on the other end so that they won't even consider the other view because they don't want to be branded a bigot or someone who's intolerant, the worst insult of all. And if you've probably noticed, we're now at the point in our culture where the accusation won't simply be that you're intolerant. Uh, you either share this view or you're a Nazi. I don't know if you've noticed that. Those are really the only two views you can have. There's no room for a slightly different opinion. You can have the same view we have on this issue, or you can be a Nazi. You can take your pick of one of those two things. If you have kids in the public school system, then, then you know. I'm preaching to the choir that this is definitely taught to the young In our day. And and you know that in our society, it doesn't matter how kindly or respectfully you treat anyone who's involved in this lifestyle, you're a bigot if you don't celebrate the lifestyle. Not only do you have to agree to their right to do it, but you have to actually endorse it as something that's admirable, even a higher form of sexuality. You're not allowed in our culture to love the sinner and hate the sin. That's not good enough. That's considered intolerant. Tolerance used to mean that we could disagree about an issue as long as we're still able to treat each other with respect. We don't have to agree on what's right, but we do have to treat each other with respect, regardless of our differing views. And that's what tolerance meant for centuries, was the ability to respect different viewpoints and beliefs. Tolerance now means that you have to have one view, and if you don't, you're intolerant. And I hope you're catching the irony in that. And I was, I was thinking about it even as I was preparing this message and just saying, you know, the, the irony of it is that you don't need tolerance when everybody agrees. That's not what tolerance is for. Tolerance is only needed when you have people who don't agree. That's literally what it's for. It's for respecting people even when you have differing viewpoints. And so that's pretty much where our culture is today. And we've shared examples before that if you work for the Vancouver Fire Department, you're required to participate in the Gay Pride Parade. It's non-optional. If you don't want to do it, then you can't be a part of the Vancouver Fire Department. Um, We've gone very quickly, you'll notice, even since I first taught this message almost five years ago, just how quickly things are moving now, where uh, the Gay Pride Parade in Vancouver was first um, counter-cultural, very quickly mainstream. Now it's such a mainstream event that uh, straight families take their kids to watch it as well as a spectacle. It's a family event in Vancouver. That's not hyperbole, that's that's where things are. And in, in the States, the big story this year was that Target uh, had a specific display set up in every Target store for Pride Month in the children's clothing section uh, so that you can celebrate this as a family and buy your kids clothes to celebrate this very specifically. So we'll keep reading, keep hanging with me. I know the awkwardness is like ratcheting through the roof and you're like, I can't breathe, but just hang with me. Verse 12, then the men, the two angels said to Lot, have you anyone else here? Son-in-law, your sons, your daughters, and whomever you have in the city, take them out of this place for we will destroy this place because the outcry against them has grown great before the face of the Lord and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So the angels are telling Lot, this is the last call. This is not going to be reversed by politics or some other initiative, this is the last call. Grab whoever you can, you're all going to leave with us. Verse 14, so Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law who had married his daughters and said, get up, get out of this place for the Lord will destroy this city. But to his sons-in-law, underline this, he seemed to be joking, he seemed to be joking. Lot's lifestyle and casual faith had really damaged his spiritual credibility with everyone including his own family. And they didn't take him seriously when he said God had revealed something to him. And it's also an indicator that Lot's son-in-laws were not believers. He was allowing his daughters to marry non-believers, which which tells you that he wasn't holding a high standard for them in his own home. And as a result, the faith that Lot had didn't make it to the next generation. It didn't get passed down. It's also an indicator that not Everyone was engaged in this sin in Sodom. Even though homosexuality was widespread, there were still non-believers who didn't practice this specific sin. And it's something we also saw in the days of Noah. Everyone thought that he was a joke when he said God was going to judge the earth. Both Lot and Noah tried to save as many people as possible, but ultimately almost no one ended up believing them. Remember, Jesus pointed out what the people said in both instances. Jesus said, notice that in both instances, Lot and Noah tried to save people, but people said, it's just another day. It's just another day, man. Life goes on as it always has. People have been saying the world's going to end for centuries. Verse 15, when the morning dawned, the angels urged Lot to hurry, saying, Arise, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be consumed in the punishment of the city. And while he lingered, that is astonishing, he lingered, The men took hold of his hand, his wife's hand, and the hands of his two daughters, the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out and set him outside the city. So it came to pass when they had brought them outside. Did you catch the emphasis there? It's it's, it's redundant because God really wants us to notice that the way that Lot and his family got out of the city is they were brought out of the city. They were taken away from imminent destruction. Verse 17, so it came to pass when they had brought them outside, that he said, Escape for your life. Do not look behind you, nor stay anywhere in the plain. This is the angel speaking to Lot. Escape to the mountains, lest you be destroyed. And Lot said to them, Please no, my lords, indeed now your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have increased your mercy, which you have shown me by saving my life. But I cannot escape to the mountains, lest some evil overtake me and I die. It's too far. See now, this city pointing just over there to a little city, is near enough to flee to, and and it's a little one. Please let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my soul shall live. I hope I'm not the only person thinking here, Lot is just a complete moron. He's just been saved by angels. I don't know about you, but when someone you know is an angel says you need to leave now, lingering is not on my radar anywhere. It's like, do I though? Like really, right now? I'm like... I'm a messenger sent from heaven to save your life from the destruction God's about to rain down from heaven. Okay, flee to the mountains. Oh, it's so far, can't I just go there? He's such, he's such a whiner, he's such a loser. So just a, a, a quick practical note though. That's what we're doing when we talk about the rapture and say things like, oh, I hope Jesus doesn't come back before I get married. Or, uh I hope Jesus doesn't come back too soon. There's so much I'd like to do. (laughs) It's just astonishing because the rapture will be God saving your life and taking you to paradise. It's going to be better. The worst moment you will ever have with God in heaven will be a trillion billion times better than the best moment you will ever have on earth. Yes, single Christian, it will be even better than that. So for the love of God, don't be overheard complaining ever about the potential imminence of the rapture and us going to be like Jesus. Like Lot, you and I don't deserve to be rescued at all. So we should just be flat out grateful. Verse 21, and he said to him, see, I have favored you concerning this thing also, in that I will not overthrow this city for which you have spoken. Hurry, escape there. He says, okay, Lot, go to the small city. And then um, underline this, this is huge. For I cannot do anything until you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar. So, this is huge. This is huge. Write this down. The angel specifically tells us the believer has to reach the place of safety before wrath can come down. Did you catch that? It's not only that he's doing something nice for them, the angel says, Lot, it's a prerequisite. We've been sent to destroy this city and we cannot do it until you, the believer, have reached the place of safety. We've got to wait on you. You're the domino that has to fall before the wrath of God and judgment can fall on the city. And remember, Jesus said it will be just as it was in the days of Lot. We talked about this in detail last week. The Lord never allows those who are his to be destroyed when he judges those who have rejected him. Even when the walls of Jericho fell, for those of you who know the story, who was saved? Rahab and everyone else who was where? In her household. She was in the place of safety as the city was destroyed. And I know that some people have different takes on this, but but I just want to say this. What does God's word say? What does God's word show us about how he cares for his people? Revelation 4.1, the church goes up, the church is raptured, Then in Revelation 6, wrath comes down. And the astonishing thing is that in every culture, the number four comes before the number six. This is profound stuff right here. Years of seminary, I'm saving you here. Revelation 4 comes before Revelation 6 in every translation of the Bible. Church goes up, then wrath comes down. That's how God has always done it. It's how he will always do it. Verse 23, the sun had risen upon the earth when Lot entered Zoar. Then the Lord rained brimstone and fire on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. So he overthrew those cities, all the plain, all the inhabitants of the cities, and what grew on the ground. But his wife looked back behind him, and she became a pillar of salt. You might say she was assaulted. I'm oh, sorry. Sorry, too good. I was waiting the whole message for that one. All right. Oh, that's pretty good. So (laughs) write this down. And this is what's implied here is Lot's wife lived in the household of the believer, but she wasn't saved. She wasn't saved. She lived in the household of the believer, but she wasn't saved. On that day, her true heart was revealed. And the original language What we're told is that she looked back longingly with great affection. She was grieving over the loss of her city and all of her stuff that was there. The city and the culture had her affections. The Lord never did in any way. She loved the wrong thing and she wasn't saved. Lot lingered because he actually wanted to to try and save more people to see if there was a way to change some minds. But Lot's wife lingered Because she had loved living in Sodom. She had loved it. The lesson is simple. Don't live your life looking back at a world that you're not going to be staying at for very long. Speaking of the end times, that season of the rapture, Jesus said this in Luke 17 as well. He said, in that day, he who is on the housetop and his goods are in the house, let him not come down to take them away. And likewise, the one who's in the field, let him not turn back. He said, remember Lot's wife, remember Lot's wife. The point is this, if the rapture happens and you're frantically trying to grab stuff to take with you, it's already too late. You won't be going because your treasure will be on earth and not in heaven. You'll be exactly like Lot's wife. You'll be viewing leaving the earth as a loss rather than viewing Jesus as gaining everything. Lot's wife lived with the believers. Everyone thought she was part of the family. But remember when the angels came and visited how how she didn't prepare the meal? It's most likely because she didn't really recognize who they were. If she had, she would have dropped everything to serve them. Then, in the same way, Jesus himself has told us there's many people alive today who think they're believers, but the truth is that their kingdom, their treasure is on the earth. They love the earth and they belong to the earth. And so they won't be taken in the rapture because the rapture is for those who belong To Jesus and belong to the kingdom of Jesus. Those whose citizenship is in heaven. The warning from Jesus is serious. Remember Lot's wife. Don't think that proximity to believers is what's gonna save you. Well, I hang around with believers on a regular basis, so maybe some of that will rub off on me. It doesn't work that way. Some of you will recall that when Jesus spoke of the end times, he said the signs would get more and more intense as the end approached, like birth pains, like birth contractions. And the days of Lot are just one of those signs. There'll be a specific behavior, a specific sin. It'll be taught as normal to the young and old. It'll be widespread and culturally accepted. The group who participates in this sin will demand acceptance from the believer. They'll be struck with a physical infirmity that will affect both the young and the old, but it won't make them repent In fact, it'll just make them pursue the lifestyle even more aggressively. And in the days of Lot, that specific sin is identified as sexual sin. Jesus told us to pay attention when the fig tree, that's Israel, comes back to life again. And we saw Israel become a nation in 1948 after almost 2,000 years of not existing. Jesus said the generation that sees that take place is not going to die out before the rapture takes place. He said for that generation, he's at the door. Those were his words, at the door. He's that close because the truth is you can't be in labor forever. Open your eyes, read your Bible, recognize the signs and live ready for the return of Jesus. And if the thought of the rapture doesn't excite you, then you need to ask why? Because it could be that you're a little bit too in love with this world. You've got a little bit too much treasure in this world. And if that's the case, I would just encourage you to completely change and reprioritize your life so that you're excited about going to be with Jesus. I can't wait. I know for many of us, that's the exact same way we feel. Can't wait. Can't happen soon enough. So let's talk about this in closing because we raised a very, very difficult issue. Let's talk about the onus question. It's difficult. I wrote on my notes, what should our response be to the rise of the LGBT movement in our culture, but I can't actually say that because the acronym isn't LGBT anymore. I'm pretty sure there's like 12 letters in it and I haven't managed to memorize all of it yet, so I'm looking for an all-inclusive term that's not an, an anagram there and I haven't figured one out, so just please don't be offended if I say LGBT. I mean it to include the whole spectrum, okay? So what, what do we do about this as Christians? How How, how do we handle this? And, and so let's talk about some very practical things here. This is the part of the message that I'm putting here so that if I'm arrested by the government, I can be like, please listen to the whole message as well. Because we need to understand how this plays out for us. Very, very different to other religions. The way this plays out for Muslims, according to the Quran, is they put them to death. They throw them off buildings. That's what they do. Let's see what... Christians in the Bible says we're supposed to do with this issue. Number one, write this down. What I think is irrelevant. What I think is irrelevant. This is the first step to really knowing how to deal with this issue in our culture. What you think is irrelevant. What I think is irrelevant. The only thing that matters, as in all issues, is what God thinks. Because you're not the judge. I'm not the judge. Nobody else is the judge. God is the only judge. We serve him and he's our God. He's our Lord and and he's our master. So that means that when we're talking about, well, how do you think we should approach this issue? None of us should be starting our answer with the phrase, well, I think that because your opinion and my opinion are not important. And I know that's shocking in the age of social media, but our opinions are actually not that important. God says plainly, not just in Genesis, but all over his word, that this lifestyle and behavior is sin. And so we agree with God. That's what a Christian does. We agree with God. That's our starting point. When God says something is sin, we begin by agreeing with God. Don't be confused about that. And this is huge. Let me share this. If your God changes when society around you changes, then you need to be honest with yourself. He cannot be a real God. He has to be an invention of your imagination that you've simply formed to your liking because he's changing in whatever way makes you most culturally accepted and makes your life most easy. So if your God is always changing to make your life easier and to make you more acceptable to people, then don't deceive yourself. You've simply invented a God who's not real. Secondly, make a note of this. Sexual sin is different. It's different. It's fundamentally different. And we'll talk about this. The Apostle Paul told us that that sexual sin has a different personality to it, so to speak. Because Paul said that when we sin sexually, we sin against our own body. There's just something fundamentally different about the way sexual sin affects you. You know, there's nobody who battles with fantasizing back to an old lie that they told. You know, I can't help it. That one lie was just so enjoyable. I keep telling it in my mind over and over and over again. That was a really hot lie. Nobody says that. But, but sexual sin creates scars within you and, and within your mind, especially if you're a man, that you battle for the rest of your life. That's what Paul is talking about. He says when you sin sexually, you sin against your own body. Sexual sin is just different. And I think we all intrinsically understand this. Now, obviously, sexual sin includes heterosexual sin as well. Of course it does. But sexual sin is not like every other sin. If another believer says, you know, we've all got our sin issues. Mine is that I look at porn all the time. Or mine is that I just sleep around as a, a lot. None of us as believers should respond to those statements with, well, who am I to judge? I'm a sinner too. We've all got our thing and the same is true for people who claim to be believers but are actively practicing homosexuality or any other type of sexual sin. Jesus told us explicitly in the Bible, through the Apostle Paul, that we are to judge those who are inside the church. We're to hold each other To live in a God-honoring way, in a way that brings glory to Jesus. We're not meant to judge those who are outside the church. That's God's job, according to the Bible. So that means very simply, we don't expect non-believers to act like believers. We don't expect it. Someone at my work or my gym who was gay or transgender or anything like that, I don't have any expectation that they would follow the teachings of the Bible because they're not a believer. God says you shouldn't expect them to do that. So we don't have to put that expectation on people, if that makes sense. But within the church, we're to honor Jesus. Thirdly, we need to understand that being born with a predisposition towards a specific sin doesn't exempt you from God's standards. It doesn't make you a special case. It doesn't exempt you from God's standards. So let's get real here. Let's get get really real for a second. Uh, I'm a man, you're like, I've, I've noticed, I hope so, okay. And like 99.99% of men, I was born with a predisposition towards sinful and sexual lust. That predisposition is something I will battle with until I'm done in this body. If you ladies think it goes away when men are in their old age, it's, it's not true at all. Beware the creepy old man. So <laughs> don't believe me if I ever stand up here and say, Great news, guys. I had a great summer, and I just want to share with you that uh, this summer I fully conquered lust. It's no longer any type of temptation. It's it's just not a thing anymore for me. I've ascended, for lack of a better word. I've transcended that sin completely, and I'm now impervious to lust. Don't believe me if I say that, but, but what would your response be if I said, you know what, church? I've realized that If I battle lust in this body, it must be because that's the way God made me. And if this is the way God made me, then I need to be true to the way God made me and and pursue that leading. I need to pursue those desires because after all, if God made me this way, if these desires are within me, then it must be right for me to pursue them, right? So what I've done, church, I just want to be open and honest I've taken on two mistresses. The church is helping to subsidize that because it costs a little bit. And I'm here to tell you that porn is okay. If, If God made you to want it, you need to be true to who you are. And if any of you are judging me right now, shame on you. What would your reaction be if I did that? Would you say that my logic is spiritually sound? It's scripturally sound? Of course not. I'm going to give an extreme example, and this is to make the point. This is not to be insulting to anybody, but this is to make the point. Do you realize that most sociopaths and psychopaths have genuine mental health issues that were present in them from birth? Many of them are born that way, and none of us would say, well, then what are we doing punishing them for murdering all these people? It's not their fault. I mean, they were born this way, and so they need to follow these natural impulses that they have. We all automatically, obviously understand that wouldn't make sense as a justification for it. But yet in areas of sexuality, we're willing to say, well, well if you were born this way, if you had a predisposition from birth towards this sin, then that must make it okay. The reality is we've all got sins that we're predisposed to, all of us, because we're all born sinful. But that doesn't justify us pursuing those sins and giving ourselves over to them. We all have besetting sins. And and I can't imagine how difficult it would be to have something like same-sex attraction be your besetting sin, be the one that you were perhaps born with or came into your life at a very young age. I can't imagine. I know... I know it must be achingly difficult if you're a believer who struggles with same-sex attraction. But it doesn't mean that we're excused from fighting it and battling it with the power of the Holy Spirit. None of us are excused from battling the sins that we struggle with. In 1 Corinthians 10.13, Paul wrote, No temptation has overtaken you except such which is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. So we're called to fight our sin nature. We're told that God will help us do it even when it's very painful and very difficult. We're almost done here. Fourthly, don't protest the fulfillment of biblical prophecy. Don't protest the fulfillment of biblical prophecy. Jesus told us his words were, these things must take place. He said, don't be afraid of them. Just get excited that I'm coming back soon. Do you understand that rationally there's no reason to not allow polygamy if you as a country allow gay marriage? I'm, I'm shocked that there's still laws against polygamy because I don't see how you can legally justify it. Because if you justify gay marriage by the basis that it's consenting adults doing what they want to do, how in the world can you not apply the same logic to a polyamorous relationship? I, I don't think you can. And so I know that right now, even in Canada, they're not prosecuting uh, recently some of the biggest polygamy cases because it's just a formality till that becomes legally acceptable because once you've gone down this road, you can't logically not also give the same rights to uh, polygamists as well. Our society is going to be there very, very soon and and it'll be very culturally accepted. And and as was the case with uh, the homosexual movement, I would just expect to see more and more and more uh, polyamorous uh, relationships depicted on TV as well, because that's also a cultural setter as you get it into entertainment and it becomes culturally acceptable. Somebody pointed that out to me years ago. They said, you know, if you want to get a culture to change, another thing you can do is get them to laugh at an issue. So something like uh, polygamy, if you can get people to laugh at it on TV, they become less threatened by it and immediately become more accepting of it. So remember that Jesus said that these signs in the last days would accelerate and become more and more and more intense. Even 20 years ago, none of us could fathom the world that we're living in today from a morality perspective. Let me say this, even 10 years ago, none of us could even fathom where we are now. Even five years ago, none of us could fathom the idea that Parents, when their son tries on a dress, would now decide that that means he's a girl and they need to pursue gene therapy for him based on that one moment. This would have been unthinkable even five years ago. And I, and I point this out not to say, be alarmed or protest. I point this out to say, are you recognizing that things are accelerating? Change is happening in our culture at an ever-increasing pace. And so if we believe that if you're born with a sexual predisposition and that that's a reason to allow homosexuality or transgenderism, then we're very soon going to be at the point of, of why not pedophilia? I mean, if there's people who are born with that, then why is that so unacceptable all of a sudden? And please know again, you might think, Jeff, you're being a little bit over the top, but I, I really don't think I am. And I think the last five years shows that that's the way that history sort of flows. So stand for truth in your home. Stand for it in your church. And when asked, don't lie about it. Be gracious, but be honest. Be honest about it. There's no need to protest the fulfillment of biblical prophecy. Rejoice that it means Jesus is very close to coming for his church. And Lot's also a picture of how we should respond in the day that we're living in. He doesn't go out and protest. He just... Tries to save his own family and anybody else who will listen to it. The Bible makes it clear that that God's plan for dealing with this increasing sin and culture is not going to be a massive revival before the rapture takes place. The rapture is his plan for pulling his church out of the situation. God didn't have the angels go out and preach and convert everybody outside the door, He simply had them remove the believer from the situation protect the believer before God's judgment comes upon the earth. Fifthly, live with spiritual credibility. Live with spiritual credibility. Don't, don't be like Lot. Lot was so immersed in his culture that, that nobody began to take him seriously when he spoke about spiritual matters. Everyone said, you? you, you you're, you're now a spiritual guy? Suddenly you've got morals and standards? We know how you live, Lot. Come on, what a joke. If your life and your lifestyle and your entertainment choices look like everybody else's, don't expect people to take you seriously and parents especially, don't expect your faith to pass down to your children. Our children need to understand that they're different. We're different as a family and our citizenship is in heaven. We're not trying to be like everyone else. We're not trying to have everyone else like us. We're trying to bless Jesus. Parents, one of the best things you can do is be honest with your kids about the fact that we are different. We are different. And it's going to mean living different. Number six, only one more to go. Be more concerned with offending God than offending people. Be more concerned with offending God than offending people. If you're a Christian, you've got to understand there is not a perfect answer when someone says to you, "Like, so what do you think about like gay marriage? There's not a perfect answer, the one that we all want. where We're like, okay, what's the answer I can give here where they won't think I'm a bigot and will still be nice to me, and but I can still not sell out Jesus in the Bible. There's not that answer. It doesn't exist. You just have to be honest. And when push comes to shove, you have to say, listen, I'm more concerned about offending Jesus than I am about offending people if someone's gonna not like my answer, I'd rather it be a person than, than Jesus himself. And we need to steal our resolve a little bit because what's considered intolerant is just gonna get increasingly, increasingly broad. And there's a dangerous idea sweeping through the modern church that says, hey, listen, if you're really living like Jesus, then everyone will like you. If People don't like you, if people don't love you, then you must not be representing Jesus well because everybody loved Jesus. And we always point out what? Well, they killed him. (laughs) Did you forget that part? Everybody didn't like Jesus. They hated him so much, they called out for him to be crucified when it all came down to it. They didn't kill Jesus because he was a great guy. They killed him because they refused to accept him as their Lord and King. They rejected his rule and his reign. And Jesus himself said, woe to you when all men speak well of you for so did their fathers to the false prophets. Here's the idea, Jesus says the only way that everybody is gonna say good things about you is if you're a false prophet, if you're lying. Oh no, there's nothing in the Bible that says that gay marriage is wrong. Jesus says everyone will like you, but it'll be because you're a false prophet. We gotta be more concerned with living for Jesus' approval than anyone else. Here's the bottom line, we're called to love others regardless of their lifestyle. That's bottom line for every Christian. We're not called to judge non-believers. It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. Now on the flip side, we're called to not approve of sin, even from non-believers, even from non-believers. We don't judge them, but we don't have to approve of it. We're called to be honest about what God's word says when we're asked, and we're called to hold to God's standards in his church. So that means that we recognize sin as sin, It doesn't mean you can't come to church if you struggle with sexual sin or with same-sex attraction. It just means that you're called to confront it. Whether you struggle with same-sex attraction or heterosexual sexual sin, every Christian is called to confront their besetting sins. So if you're here today, or if you're listening online, and you struggle to deal with same-sex attraction, I I would just say this. I know it's still awkward in the church. I know it's difficult. And I want you to know that you're welcome here. You're welcome in the church, in any church that truly, truly loves Jesus. I told you earlier, here's my plea. Here's my plea. Get help if you struggle with sexual sin. I I was very honest earlier. Like most men, mine is lust. I'm a dude. So I got help for my sin. I put up protections. I have internet accountability. I made sure that I dealt with that sin in my life and continue to deal with it. But it only gets dealt with when I'm honest about it and if I stay honest about it. Every sin has power in darkness. That's what Satan does is he says, keep this hidden. And as soon as sin gets pulled into the light, it immediately begins to lose its power. So if you're dealing with any type of sexual issue, talk to someone. I'm available, my wife is available. Many great believers in this group are available. Talk with someone and come up with a plan to deal with it, to confront it. You can feel free to email me anytime as well. Jesus loves, he loves you. He died for you, he died for me. He has an eternal plan for your life and, and your identity is not the sin that you're battling. And I really want to make this, this clear here. Don't define yourself ever by your temptation. Don't define yourself by the sin that you struggle with. I'm so, I'm so thankful for, for AA and the millions of people they've helped, but if there's one area in which I wish they were different, it would be that they define you by your struggle, and you get up every time you say, hi, I'm Jeff, and I'm an alcoholic, I'm a drug addict. And, And Jesus would say, no, you define yourself as a son or a daughter of the Most High God. That's your identity. This other thing, that's the sin you struggle with. That's your temptation, but that's not your identity. And that's so important because there's no power in the sin that you struggle with. There's no power in your temptation, but there is unlimited conquering Overcoming power in the name of Jesus. There's unlimited power in your identity as a son or daughter of God. And you're never without hope when you define yourself as a child of God because whatever you're facing, He's greater. And the power that you need to overcome that sin day by day by day is available through Jesus. It's available for Him. So you made it. Everybody made it through the message. You made it through. It's a difficult one. Next week, we're going to take a look at the same chapter, but from a very, very different, very, very encouraging angle. And I know that this is a, a difficult subject. It's an awkward subject. And the hope is just that we're honest about it tonight. And you're reminded of some truths and that you're also reminded that it, it, it's going to get difficult. I don't want to lie to you, church. It's going to get very, very difficult. And so it's important to be sure about what you believe. So with that, let me pray for us. And then we'll, we'll actually split into groups and pray. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for the truth of your word and thank you, Jesus, that thousands of years before we got to the point, you laid out for us in your word in incredible detail some of the things that would be going on in the last days, in our day and age. And the reason you did it is not so that we would be alarmed or be fearful, but so that we would know that everything is on track. Your plan is perfectly in play and you are coming soon. You're coming to save your church and take your church to be with you. And then after that, Lord, you're going to come back and make all things right on the earth. And Father, we just thank you that that through you, we can be free and walk in freedom uh, from the sins that we struggle with, whatever they might be, sexual or otherwise. And Jesus, my prayer is that we would rely on your power. We would seek your power in a fresh way every day uh, to walk in your power, uh, not having to, to hide in shame and deal with sin in secret but to really walk in that freedom, Lord. So we just pray right now for, for any among us or any who might listen online, Lord, who are struggling with sins in secret right now. Would you give them the boldness, Lord God, to bring it out into the light that there might be freedom and healing and restoration and forgiveness, that that sin would have no power over them. Thank you for your word and thank you for your power, Lord. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen.